0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows
2: podcast
3: with George Galloway.
1: This is the place where the guilty men will be named and shamed. And I have a long list, a list as long as your arm, and going back far more than the beginning of this year. We'll also be signalling out those who are worthy of praise and, in some case, beatification. The reality is that everything in the whole world has changed and forever in these 10 days 20 days, 30 days, 60 days that have shaken the entire world. I was uh, indistinct about the starting point, and that is one of the issues I'm going to discuss in my monologue this evening. Uh, But the world has changed in many ways. First of all, scales have fallen from our eyes, and truths emerged like uh, icebergs in declining levels of water. We see the seven-eighths of the reality of our world that has been hidden, at least to many people, maybe most people, over most of their lives. It has changed the economy. The economy has been effectively nationalized, at least here in Britain, uh, but also in the United States, where Donald Trump is sending cheques, imagine, of thousands of dollars. Imagine, not to the people he normally sends money to, the 1%, the rich and already powerful, uh, but to ordinary people. And the reason is the intervention by the state in the economy in the midst of this catastrophe is not because old uh, orthodoxies have been abandoned, not because they are no longer believed. You can put it in a crude equation. Uh, The government state intervention in the economy as a result of this health catastrophe is in direct proportion to the fear of those who have hitherto governed our affairs, uh, that the people having learned what they are now learning and will learn in the next couple of months may demand, may take from the rich and powerful that which should never have been theirs in the first place, but which they hoped we would allow them to continue to hold. I'll explain what I mean by that in some detail in the course of this uh, monologue. But the world will never be the same again politically. We are revealed to be lions led by donkeys. And that donkey in the United States is not just the one at the podium in the White House. That donkey is also the Democratic Party, which has successfully strangled to death the only candidate that could successfully have run and beaten Donald J. Trump in November. Bernie Sanders is no more. The saintly Tulsi Gabbard has endorsed Joe Biden. Joe Biden has gone missing because it's not safe to allow him out alone. He'll pick a fight with voters. He'll curse them and swear at them. He'll ask them outside for a fight, even though he's the best part of 80 years old. He'll lose his way. He'll forget his own name. He'll forget the name of the president that he served as vice president. Biden-Bama, he will Go off script or rather reveal a true script that is potentially completely, utterly ruinous for any possibility that the Democratic Party can seize the White House in November. That means we're almost certain now, short of him getting coronavirus and becoming horse to combat, we're almost certain to have at the podium for the next four and a half years. A man who told us that the coronavirus was a Democratic Party hoax. A man who told us uh, that it was like a mild flu. A man who told us that America would get through this easily. A man who is an apologist for the political and economic system which has now placed literally millions of American citizens at risk of death and serious permanent ill health because they don't even have the basics. They have a third world health service for scores of millions of Americans. Of course, America has great doctors. It has wonderful uh, health facilities, but for scores of millions, 60, 80, 100 million Americans, They're scared to go to the doctor and ask to be tested because if they are tested, they will simply not be able to afford the treatment which will then become ineluctable, inescapable, absolutely necessary. Donald Trump has wavered, havered. He has skewed everywhere at the podium, and in the halls of power of the White House. And people don't expect much more from him. But I'm bound to tell you there are other guilty men of whom it was possible, indeed likely, that people had reposed more confidence in. Let me start with the guilty man called the European Union. The European Union visited Italy not a month ago, not three weeks ago, not in a medical suit, not bearing hazmat, not bearing face masks, not bearing medicines, not bearing ventilators or test kits. The European Union visited Italy to give them a fine of 70 million euros, fine them for daring to subsidize their own tourist industry in Sardinia. Meanwhile, Cuba and Russia are rushing to the aid of Italy. A European Union member, a NATO member, a non-socialist country is now receiving an influx of health workers from socialist Cuba whom we're supposed to hate, whom the West has quarantined this past half century or more. Russia, which may well be on the brink of a major coronavirus crisis itself, is sending its doctors and its medicine to Italy. Where is the European Union? Where are the fraternal governments of Italy? They are absent without trace, except where they are trying actively to make Italy's problems even worse. My heart breaks for the Italian people, for those who have lost people and are not even able to say goodbye to them, where there can now in Lombardy be no more burials where cremation is mandatory and where even the crematoria are now so full they're having to turn coffins away, where doctors and nurses are dying at their post in the front line, trying to save the lives of their patients, where mass cannot be held, where priests are struggling manfully to deliver the last rites to dying patients through plastic walls. This catastrophe is, of course, as yet of unknown source. Donald Trump calls it the China virus. Well, that's as accurate as calling the flu pandemic of 1918 the Spanish flu, though it had nothing whatsoever to do with Spain. This virus may or may not, I'm personally not persuaded, I've got to tell you, have arisen by entirely natural causes, first in China. But if you think that it's present all over the world because China is to blame, then you are blinded by ideological hatred and rage. As a matter of fact, China is the only country to have beaten this virus and within 12 days was able to identify the exact nature of this virus and immediately give it free everywhere all over the world. China with its decisive action because of the kind of state, the kind of country that it is, is the only success story so far followed by South Korea, a non-communist country, an Asian country, but which has admirably, swiftly, and in the most serious way, tackled this outbreak. In so doing, they gave countries like America, countries like Britain, weeks of grace in which they ought to have could have, should have armed themselves against the unseen menace that was about to sweep their lands and cut down uh, their people. But we wasted that time. And we now know, thanks to the Sunday Times, why we in Britain wasted it. We wasted it because Dominic Cullings or Cummings the Prime Minister's right hand was secretly and then not so secretly following the politics of Malthus. His prescription was to allow the oldest, the weakest, the illest amongst us to die. Hundreds of thousands of us at best and millions of us At worst. Now, what can you say in 2019 about a government whose policy was to allow millions of their own citizens to die? In a weird parenthesis, many of whom had voted for Boris Johnson just three months before putting him into power. All people in Britain, by a huge majority, voted for Boris Johnson, yet Boris. Johnson was ready to see them die. There are guilty men all over the place. They'll be emerging in the course of this show. We'll be naming them. But there's something more profound, more historic, that has now to be said. We thought, or most of us did, that we were living in an era of social medicine. We thought we were living in a welfare state. We thought we had authorities competent to deal with national existential emergencies. But none of that was true. And this did not begin with Boris Johnson, or Theresa May, or David Cameron, or even Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, even John Major, this began In 1979, 40 years ago, we began systematically to destroy the sinews, the vital organs of the society which in the post-war period we built in this country. We pretended that we still had a national health service even when it became well less than national and became not a health service but a sickness service where public health provision was effectively abandoned, where private medicine was effectively encouraged to grow and flourish so that we are now in this emergency, imagine, paying two and a half million pounds a day To the private health service in Britain, who have kindly made for two and a half million pounds a day available their beds, their ventilators, their staff, who are all paid better, equipped better, are cleaner than ours. The health service that we thought was the National Health Service, the privatization of our health system, which has been going on for 40 years, uninterrupted, has left us too with a health service unable to cope even with this early stage of this existential threat to our people. This is early. We're two weeks behind Italy. When we are Italy, then the one critical emergency that has been declared by one hospital in London, in Harrow, will be the norm throughout all of our hospitals. None of them are capable of facing up to what we are about to face. We don't have enough critical care beds. We don't have enough ventilators. We don't even have face masks. I've got a face mask. Doctors and nurses in Britain now are dealing with coronavirus patients without a face mask or at least a clean one. They're having to reuse things on which it says clearly, do not reuse. Our doctors and our nurses are at the front line fighting this at the risk of their own lives because we have a government in the sixth richest country on the earth that hasn't even ordered enough face masks even now to protect even our own staff, never mind the general public. I have this because my wife brought it back from Korea months ago just in case we'd ever need it. What kind of state are we in that the minimal, minimal planning strategy for national emergencies have not been taken and where we face the cutting down of potentially millions of our people. You think I'm exaggerating? Well, the rate of increase in deaths in Britain, I'm not so fixated on the numbers who've got it. Because frankly, without testing, you can't possibly know how many people have got it. You're only testing people that present at the hospital. There could be millions of us got it already. But the number of deaths in Britain is now increasing more sharply than Italy than China at a comparable stage of the development of the pandemic. And as Italy is being overwhelmed, so very well might we. And we have a government that for some bizarre reason announces on a Friday morning that the pubs will close on Saturday, begging millions of people to go out boozing on the Friday night, fraternizing closely in crammed public houses. God knows how many people have caught the virus on the last night of boozing in pubs in Britain. We have a government that keeps saying, stay away from each other, or we'll have to come forward with New measures that will somehow force you to. Again, an open invitation to still more people to pack the Columbia Road flower market or Richmond Park as they did this weekend because they know, inevitably, as the death toll rises, that such measures will become Inevitable as they have become inevitable in Italy, in Spain, in France, and as they were from day one in China. That's how China beat this thing, by taking draconian action. And amongst the guilty men, I accuse you libertarians, as you obviously like to call yourselves, those who went along with Trump, It's all a hoax. It's all some device to seize our civil liberties. What about the civil liberty of staying alive? Of your children staying alive? Of your old mother staying alive? People who spend all day on Twitter calling the doctors liars, scientists liars, Virologists, liars, epidemiologists, they're all liars. The Chinese government, liars, Russian government, liars. They're guilty too, and utterly reckless of the health and indeed the lives of their fellow citizens. But I've gone over my time. Here's my last point, although I'll return to it. Be sure. It's abundantly clear that capitalism is part of the sickness. Do the maths. You see, if you can't stay home for economic reasons, as is the case in many countries, and is the case even now for millions of people in Britain who are self-employed, like me, I've got to come to work so the people much less well-paid than me who are self-employed. If you can't get the best healthcare that's available unless you can afford to pay for it, if you can't build public services and real communities unless you can pay for it, then you and your system are part of the problem. That's why I say, when this is over, there will be a reckoning. And that reckoning will include the guilty men and women, yes. But it must also include this inescapable fact that there is such thing as society and this virus proves it. No man is an island entire unto himself, as John Donne told us centuries ago, that we either stand together or fall separately, that we cannot combat existential threats to our human existence based on a free market capitalism which simply isn't up to such a task. It's not fit for purpose. There's a poll. A, have Western government's responses to the crisis been A, too draconian, B, not tough enough, C, about right? You can vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Let's take a break. Of course, time waits for no man and the US presidential election will go ahead. Can you imagine if Donald Trump cancelled it because of the emergency? My goodness, that would set the pussy hats running. But on the assumption that democracy will take its place, take its time in November, it's going to be Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. If Joe Biden is still standing... In November? That's a legitimate question because nobody has seen him. And in the outtakes of when we last saw him, it was enough to chill your blood. This man should not be out alone. He should be under 14-day quarantine as a man at risk because of underlying problems. You might think that unkind, but you won't think that if he becomes the president. The Ukrainian candidate, if he were to become the president, would be like Ronald Reagan in his dotage and then some. So what is going on in the Democratic Party? What is going on with Joe Biden? I'm joined by a very considerable expert, the assistant editor of the wonderful Gray Zone Project, journalist, writer, filmmaker, Ben Norton who joins me now. Ben, welcome back on the show.
4: So happy to be here. Thanks for having me, George.
1: Let's start with, uh, with Joe Biden, uh, because most of the people watching and listening to this will have been hoping uh, that the Democrats would pick somebody that could actually defeat Donald Trump in November. But they haven't, have they?
4: No, not at all. And the irony is that the DNC, this is the apparatus that controls the Democratic Party, the the, the Democratic National Committee, the DNC has said for years now that Joe Biden is the most electable candidate. Of course, the majority of polls show that's not true. Bernie Sanders is much more popular. Bernie Sanders is, in fact, the most popular U.S. politician. What the DNC really means is that Joe Biden is the most pro mainstream centrist party politics he's not going to rock the boat in fact joe biden at this point with his mental state he's really just a kind of blank slate i mean you were saying george that people haven't seen joe biden in days and this is a guy who we need to be very clear here suffers from very bad dementia he has very bad mental health problems And one of the reasons the DNC loves him as a candidate so much is because they know that he's just really going to follow orders, that he'll be a kind of figurehead and that the party apparatus, the intelligence agencies, large corporations and Wall Street, they're going to be the ones who actually govern. And meanwhile... If that's only if Joe Biden can win the election. And like you said, the chances of him actually defeating Donald Trump, I think, are very low because all you have to do is see Trump on stage and Biden on stage and Biden would get completely demolished. He can barely speak rational thoughts, yet alone defend himself against someone like Trump, who, you know, Trump is is an awful person in many ways. But you have to admit that Trump is a very effective debater and he can demolish his political rivals with ease.
1: I don't know. I think you're probably too young to have seen Mike Tyson uh, in his pomp. Uh, when no, he, not too i his fights. Mike Tyson could tear his opponents limb from limb, especially in the first five, six rounds. Uh, he was literally unstoppable. That seems to me what Donald Trump will be like up against Joe Biden.
4: No, I think you're absolutely right. Joe Biden, maybe 10, 20 years ago, you know, you could say that maybe he was a fighter. Now, he always had right-wing politics. He was always pro-war. He was always pro-Wall Street. But you could say maybe 10 or 20 years ago that he could fight back. But at this point, he doesn't even remember where he is. He just gave a speech a few days ago, and it was clear that he didn't remember what he was doing. He lost his train of thought right in the middle of his sentence. And also, this is a guy who just several weeks ago gave a speech in which he said, as someone running for the US Senate, I'm going to do this. He forgot he's even running for president. So how are we supposed to expect expect this man, who again, we just have to acknowledge this fact, is suffering from extreme dementia. How are we going to expect him to fight in, in the political arena, someone, a Tyson figure like Trump, who regardless of what you think about Trump's politics, he's a very able politician when it comes to challenging his opponents, ridiculing his opponents. And you need a fighter who's going to push back, someone like Bernie. People say that they don't like Bernie because he's not nice. Well, since when are politicians supposed to be nice? Look at Donald Trump. If you want to defeat Trump, you need someone who's on the left and has an actual political program that working class people want and also someone who's willing to fight for it. And Biden is neither of those two things. He's right wing and can't fight.
1: All of which begs the question, it's a difficult one, Ben, for you and for me and for others who think like us. How was it possible for Bernie Sanders to lose to such a guy?
4: Well, Bernie's not out yet, but you're right that he's definitely on the ropes. It looks like he's probably, I don't think he's going to withdraw soon, but he's probably going to lose and Biden will likely be the candidate. Now, there are a few reasons. One, we should be blatantly clear that the DNC has rigged this process. This is clear to anyone who looks at the process. There has been massive voter disenfranchisement. The DNC just held primaries last week in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, endangering public health, even though the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, the U.S. government's health arm, they said that the DNC should not hold the primary elections and it still did. So that was clearly an egregious, ridiculous act.
0: Also, if you look at a lot can happen in the next three years, like a chat bot, maybe your new best friend, but what won't change needing health insurance, Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
4: The exit polls on primary after primary consistently, the primaries where Bernie was supposed to win but he lost by a small margin, consistently the exit poll shows a 10, 12, even 15 percent difference from the actual results. When we have results and the DNC in some cases doesn't release the results until a week or two after, as we saw with California, and the results themselves are rather dubious because they're computerized and there's not a paper ballot trail. So we can't double check what the results are. So there are so many irregularities. And then finally, we have to acknowledge that aside from the extreme media bias, the constant media attacks, the rigging by the DNC, it's also true that Bernie, he never took off his gloves. You know, talking about the boxing metaphor, Bernie, like Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, he was always afraid of damaging the party Corbyn didn't want to damage the Labor Party. Bernie didn't want to damage the Democratic Party, even at the moment when these party apparatuses were viciously attacking and smearing both Corbyn and Bernie. And the thing is, Bernie didn't want to be blamed. Bernie thought that if he didn't win the primary, he didn't want to be blamed for someone like Biden losing to Trump because Biden attacked because because Bernie rather attacked Biden aggressively in the primary process. So instead, Bernie took a step back and never really attacked Biden and his other rivals. So what that meant is that they would constantly attack him and then he would just take the blows, just like Corbyn would constantly be attacked by the Blairites and he would never respond. And the reality is you can't do that if you're trying to run an aggressive, progressive campaign against the ruling class, against the party elite, because in order to do that successfully, You have to be a strong leader. And unfortunately, both Corbyn and Bernie, I think, were not nearly strong enough.
1: There is a race issue, though, also, isn't there? Um, Joe Biden, for some reason unclear to me, uh, having lied about his non-role in the civil rights movement, uh, his lie about Mandela. Uh, having given the eulogy at Thurman's funeral, one of the great last segregationists in American politics, actually having very dodgy views on race, nonetheless got a very clear plurality of black people's votes, which in the Democratic Party primaries is of course extremely important. In the state of Missouri, Black people over 60 voted for Joe Biden by 96%, Bernie Sanders, 3%, according to the exit poll. How do you account for that? And how can that be avoided in the future?
4: Well, it's a good question. First of all, we should realize that on the racial lines in terms of differences for voting, if you look at young people, those differences disappear. So Bernie Sanders has a majority of young black voters and regardless of age, Bernie Sanders had a majority of Latino, a plurality I would say, of Latino voters. So it's not, it's not just black voters, specifically it's older black voters who went with Biden. And I think there are a few reasons for that. One, because these are people who are not really, older people in general are, um, I mean, there are so many great exceptions Um, But in general, older people are not as engaged on social media, not online, and they get most of their news from the large TV corporate conglomerates, CNN and MSNBC. And especially MSNBC, but also CNN, had insane nonstop anti-Sanders propaganda every single day, day in and day out. And also the thing about Joe Biden is, like you said, even though this is a guy who hobnobbed with segregationists, who has said many extremely racist things. He does have a political history in a way that Bernie Sanders does not. Bernie Sanders is from the Northeast in Vermont, which is a small state and a mostly white state. So I think the the congruence most importantly of the media and the fact that the old forms of media, the TV and newspapers have been viciously anti-Sanders in general, that meant that older folks and including older black voters have overwhelmingly gone with more party establishment candidates like Biden, whereas younger voters who were engaged in social media and alternative media and who want something new, they want a change from the status quo. They largely went with Bernie Sanders.
1: Now, we're ignoring the elephant uh, in the room, of course. Uh, it might be that all of this is small beer uh, come November. Uh, because your country and mine, but I have a feeling, a bad feeling, that in yours it's going to be the worst uh, in the whole world. Uh, This coronavirus crisis is going to become, well, indescribable, unimaginable even. Uh, What's the feeling abroad in the United States about this? Are people seized of just how serious this is? Are they seized of the fact that it may be the worst thing that ever happened to the United States, and I include two world wars in that.
4: Well, I, I don't know about the worst thing because we can't forget the, the genocide of indigenous peoples and enslavement of Africans, but definitely in the past 100 years, I think you're right. Compared to, I mean, the, not that many Americans died in World War I and World War II compared to Europe. So I think you're right that we could be talking about thousands, hundreds of thousands, even potentially, we'll see. But some ex- medical experts are saying that if it's not contained, if serious active, if serious measures like quarantine and social distancing are not enforced by the state soon, we could potentially be seeing millions of deaths. Deaths because the, there's 330 million people in the U.S. Even if you take one percent of that, that's 3.3 million people, and that's considering a very low death rate. So, well, it's currently 10 percent in Italy. Absolutely, 11% Italy, I mean, it's out of control. So I think you're right that this could be a total catastrophe. And the thing is a lot of Americans haven't really realized that. There's a weird contradiction. A lot of people in the US are very paranoid in general and it's a very fearful country. Everyone's always afraid of each other. So of course, people have seen on the news that Americans for some reason have bought months worth of toilet paper and have been buying stocking up and all this food. But at the same time, many other Americans don't think it's a big deal. They think it's exaggerated. And they've been going out with friends, going to the park. So I think that part of that is cultural. But part of that is because the U.S. is a very decentralized country. And after decades of neoliberal policy, the national government, even though abroad, the federal government, the national government is constantly waging war, imposing sanctions, abroad, its actions are very authoritarian. Inside the country the federal government is much weaker than people realize and it's largely based on different state governments. So each state has its own response. New York State and California State have responded pretty aggressively taking the measures that medical experts say they should take. But many other states have not responded. So I think, and of course the federal government under Trump has done very little and and until recently wasn't taking it seriously at all. So unfortunately I think that people aren't going to realize how much of a catastrophe this will be until they start seeing deaths. And we've already seen some deaths and the number of cases is now skyrocketing exponentially. So people really need to get serious as soon as possible because this could be a total catastrophe.
1: Ben Norton, sobering words. Thank you for your perspective on both the political and the health crisis in the United States. Uh, uh, Dr. Veronica Fowler on our Facebook says, there is a small team of us volunteering at Basingstoke and North Hampshire Hospital, COVID-19 lab, Stephen Kidd's Laboratory. Today it was me, Dr. Veronica Fowler, and Dr. Sarah Fouch. These two are in the photo above. I am on the left. Dr. Fauch and I are volunteering on Mother's Day to keep the COVID-19 lab going at Basingstoke and North Hampshire hospital, molecular, virologists, microbiologists are all coming together to fight this pandemic. How wonderful, how utterly wonderful. I take my hat off to you both and to all of those uh, working at the front line. Now, of course, this is not just a health emergency. Uh, To call it an emergency is a grotesque understatement. Uh, This is uh, an existential threat to the health and even the life of millions of people, Uh, but it's also, of course, by extension, an economic emergency. You could say disaster. I said earlier we're already in recession. It seems to me impossible that it will not be a depression, but I don't know the economy as well as Jonathan Davis, who's an economist, a wealth advisor, and presenter of the podcast Booms and Busts show. And he joins me now, I'm glad to say. Jonathan, thank you very much for giving up your Sunday evening uh, uh, entirely free of charge uh, to to advise us. I'm sure you get a decent pay for advising others. It's particularly good of you to do it for the mother of all talk shows. Sum up for us, would you, the impact so far uh, of the uh, virus on the British economy and the costs of the British government's response and where this is all likely to go even if we ever go over this?
3: Well, we certainly will get over it. Uh, That that is absolutely without question. Um, You're also, you're in fact correct that we are unfortunately in recession. Um, There is no question also that um, this quarter, which of course ends next week, and next quarter, the second quarter of the year, will see a very deep fall in the size of our economy, the GDP. Um, it, it could be as huge as 10%, um, because clearly we're in lockdown practically. Um, it, discretionary spending, is basically finished. Um, all, all that people are spending on is, is groceries, uh, more or less. Um, in terms of um, how long this will last, well, that actually depends less on um, financial markets and uh, governments, because the governments and central banks are throwing the kitchen sink at the problem um so financially i think we'll come out the other side sooner than the economy the economy will be in recession until we get rid of covid 19 which might be in six months time i think more likely it's next year although they have certainly in america they've started um uh, uh with uh, uh with drugs which apparently they 're having some success with so we 'll see how that goes. but the amount of stimulus globally um, that the central banks and governments are putting into it in in the u k the chancellor three hundred billion pounds um we're we're a, 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 a what a, a a two a one and a half trillion bound economy. they 're putting in twenty percent Um, of the economy to, quote, combat COVID-19. It's unprecedented. And then the central banks, um, so far, it's five to six trillion dollars, euros, pounds, whatever, um, literally astronomical. Again, unprecedented. It took them weeks through 2008, sorry, weeks, months through 2008, to get to those levels of stimulus. They've done it in less than a month. That's how serious they're taking this. Um, We'll get through the other side, but uh, the world will be very different, I'm afraid to say, uh, in a year's time.
1: Yes, I'm sure about that.
3: Uh, Let's ask the
1: obvious question. Where did all this government money come from? When when Labor stood in the general election in December on an almost infinitely more modest uh, programme of public expenditure uh, as this. It was denounced as unaffordable communism. Uh, where did the Tories get this kind of money?
3: Well, may I say, first of all, that this is communism. Um, the Johnsons just announced that uh, they're, they're going to take a stake in British Airways. Um, if, if, if a, a, a nation um, owning um, state company or uh, companies or industries is not communism. I, I don't know what is. So of course it's communism. And um, paying private sector employees 80% of their salaries up to 30,000 pounds a year, of course that's communism. Um, well, where they get the money from is they print it. They, they, they push some buttons uh, on a computer at the Bank of England uh, and suddenly um, money appears, um, that's where they get all the money from and in the future um, it'll be the ordinary citizens, um, the middle class, the workers um, largely, um, who will pay for it all because, and will pay for it all over the next generation or two. Um, Because all this money printing in the UK and globally um, is, well, inevitably going to end the era, 40 or 50 years of falling inflation and usher in 20, 40, 60 years of rising inflation. So we are the ones who are going to pay for it. Are are you certain there will be inflation?
1: There hasn't been any with the quantitative easing so far. I appreciate this is a major step change. Uh, But uh, is it inevitable? Uh, Because uh, some evidence points to the contrary.
3: Well, uh, nothing in economics or in markets is inevitable. But when I mean, what's going to happen? You know, George, um, in a year or two's time, we're going to start talking about the world pre-COVID-19 and post-COVID-19. It's BC, it's a new BC. And um, post-COVID-19, there's going to be some uh, changes globally. Um, We're going to de-globalize. Um, We're going to bring back manufacturing from China. Um, That in itself is going to be inflationary because of course China has acted as a deflationary force for 20 or 30 years. So one, deglobalization will be inflationary. Secondly, when you suddenly print money for no economic productivity whatsoever, Clearly, what you're doing is creating something out of nothing. And um, it'll go into people's pockets, but they're not actually producing anything in the economy. Therefore, that will be inflationary. Um, And then um, what we're seeing, uh, particularly technical but highly relevant in the markets, is that this month, the US dollar, the global reserve currency that, um, in effect, most, uh, practically all global trade is affected in the US dollar, it shot up out of a multi-year range, uh, 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 above uh, above a level it couldn't get for years. It's done so. In other words, the world is saying, give us dollars. We need dollars. They're buying dollars left, right and centre. Why? Because that is the safe haven. The, the, what's going to happen, however, as a result of that in the future, and the dollar is going to continue soaring for quite a long time, months, few years, perhaps, and it will go through the stratosphere. What that means for the rest of the world is that stuff that they buy will be more expensive if it's all traded in the dollar. Um, put it all together. Uh, and you have um, a perfect um, storm, for, for better word, for br- rising inflation. Um, and, and with all these deficits, with these all, all these borrowings that practically every country is doing, well, that's going to have to be serviced by more borrowing. The lenders will say, we will we'll lend you government, 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 but we'll want higher interest rates. Um, because uh, you become less uh, stable. Um, we can't guarantee we're gonna get our money, so you're gonna to have to pay as a higher interest rate, as compensation, put it all together. It seems very likely to me, yes, we're heading to higher inflation, not this month, super deflation right now, but uh, on the other side of this, at uh, the end of the, this year um, and, and beyond.
1: Fascinating stuff. <laughs> it's slightly counterintuitive for me and many, I think. Uh, why the dollar? Because the United States is politically uh, a trifle unstable. It has a half impeached president who's widely derided around the world. It, it, uh, it is, uh, its economics, are, its fundamentals are not good. It's been losing its place in the international pecking order. Uh, it is... Uh, It is politically and economically weaker than it was, yet its currency is stronger than it was. At the same time, gold, which used to be and still is in the cliche, uh, the safe harbor uh, that people go to in uncertain times, price of gold has been falling. Explain Mm. if you would,
3: Jonathan. I, I I understand your point of view that uh, Trump is hated around the world. I, I entirely disagree with it. I think he's highly respected around the world. Um, and um, they, they may We must live not... in different
1: worlds, Jonathan.
3: Yeah, well, um, the, the simple fact is he, he's taking on a lot of the baddies in the world. And a lot of people really appreciate that. Secondly, inside of the US, Um, Until this month, admittedly, until this month, his polling rates were higher than Barack Obama's, when Barack Obama had 99% of the media on his side, whereas Trump's got 99% of the media against him. Uh, America um, is is not as uh, strong as it was, but then you have to ask yourself, when are you comparing it to? But... What is special about America is it believes in the individual it believes in free enterprise it, the american uh, the American possibilities that is what 's different about America. You should never bet against America. The Constitution is probably the greatest document. Uh, after Magna Carta and the Bill of, and uh, our, what is it, the, the Bill of Rights in the 17th century? Yeah. Uh, the, the greatest document ever written, or one of the two or three greatest documents. Um, in terms of why the dollar, I would actually say to you, you know, I'm, I'm a markets participant, and I often say, um, I could give you um, a baker's dozen reasons why the dollar, but ultimately it doesn't matter. Just look at the chart the dollar is soaring thus whatever the reasons whatever the reasons you should say it shouldn't happen it's happening the world is desperate for dollars you're quite right to ask about gold Um, and actually um, as strange as this may sound gold has actually been a safe haven why am i saying that because um stocks have just had the fastest crash in history. They're down more than 30%. That's the international stocks, 40, 50%, the uh, the middle cap stocks, uh, as in the national stocks, as opposed to the international stocks. Uh, they're down over 40%, the fastest crash in history. Gold is down 11%. N- nothing goes in a straight line. Um, in terms of in valuing uh, gold against the US dollar, it's down 11%, um, it's up from $1,150 an ounce um, uh, just about two years ago, it went up to $1,700 it's back to $1,500 now actually I, th- I think it's going down to about $1,350 um, after such a massive rise from $1,150 over a year and a half two years to 17, dollars to go back to $1,350 particularly when you've got everyone selling their stocks and therefore they need liquidity, so they have to sell the things that have actually got some value. That's why gold's going down, not because people don't like it. On the contrary, the bullion dealers are running out. It's because uh, some long-term holders have to sell because they need liquidity. But in the um, long-term, like you should not ever, ever bet against America, Uh, you should not be betting against gold. It depends um, uh, what your investing horizon is, but in the long term, uh, yes, uh, gold is uh, going to uh, be your insurance policy uh, and store your wealth.
1: Lastly, Jonathan, I'm really grateful for your time and expertise. Uh, You and I are both Scottish. Uh, You'll know that the Scottish nationalist perspective on independence at the referendum in 2014 was predicated upon a goal, uh, an oil price rather, uh, of well in excess of $100 a barrel. Uh, Mm -hmm. At this rate, the oil companies will be giving the oil away, maybe even paying you to take it, to save their costs on storage. Is the oil price done for good? And is the Scottish independence separatist project uh, dead with it?
3: Um, can I answer the second question first, because it'll be a quick one. Um, I, I would say that uh, post-COVID, um, j- just like um, the, the the nonsense extin- Extinction Rebellion uh, uh, fascists who want to take over the world, um, um, I, I, I think that whole thing is is over and done with for a long time. It, it's not something that people are going to be interested in, isn't it? Interesting that during March we haven't heard anything about the environment. Um, in terms of um, oil, um, well, two weeks ago, in fact, on a Sunday night, here we are, Sunday evening, on a su- Sunday night. Um, the um, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia decided to, decided to take Russia on and uh, increased their market share in oil and just slashed uh, the price of the oil in global markets, $10 overnight. Um, oil had already been falling actually for quite some time, but that just was the kicker. Um, there's the, um, um, so um, it's interesting um, that the, the, uh, the narrative is that the Saudis are taking on Russia. That may or may not be the case. But what I would suggest to you is that they're both taking on America. They're trying to get rid of the American oil complex, which which has been pumping oil like bilio. That has actually kept oil from rising as much as um, it perhaps could have done in the last couple of years. Um, There's no question, um, uh, American oil production will fall sharply, um, but again, uh, don't bet on America and certainly don't bet on American energy. I think the second point to say uh, about oil is that um, one very positive effect of um, what we've done bringing down oil is it seems to me finally the the fascist communist uh, Maduro in in Venezuela will get his comeuppance um, and and finally the Venezuelan people can be free um, and then um, Venezuela with the largest oil reserves in the world, and yet the poorest people in uh, South America, uh, the people with free market enterprise will finally, if that's how they reset it in, a, in Venezuela, will finally be able to prosper um, a, a, and stop dying from starvation. Um, Long term, as I say, we're going to have inflation and um, um, oil uh, production will fall sharply, oil will come back. We certainly haven't seen the end of oil. Um, it's, it's a nonsense idea. Um, I, I can't remember exactly, you might even know, but something like 70 or 80 percent of our energy, maybe it's not as much as that 60 or 70 percent of our global energy, is still oil. There is no way on earth that even within a decade or a generation you could get rid of oil from that position. Um, uh, Even with a move to, for example, electric vehicles, which appears to be here within 10 or 15 years, they're still going to need oil to produce energy, although what uh, I hope that the governments around the world will do is invest in more and more and more nuclear, because that's the safest, cleanest, uh, 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 and as far as I'm concerned, the best source of energy that there is. And actually, no... Um, I I think uh, oil um, um, is not bottoming here um, at the 20s. In the relatively short term, I think we'll go into the teens. Um, It will still be painful, but uh, I wouldn't at all be surprised if in a few years' time, oil is $100 as it happens.
1: Well, I knew we lived in different worlds, literally and metaphorically, and I'm grateful to have had a glimpse into yours. Jonathan Davis, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, uh, you heard the rather uh, incongruent uh, bluster uh, from our wealth advisor, Jonathan Davis, about uh, Venezuela earlier, Um, clearly pre-scripted and designed to get me going, but I thought I kept my cool quite well. My next guest is an expert on Venezuela and an expert on the sanctions that have Strangled the people of Venezuela. He's also an expert on Iran and An Iranian is dying every 10 minutes not because of the Iranian government's perfidy or uh, uh, Imperfections no because Iran is under the same kind of murderous economic blockade by the wonderful USA uh, as uh, Venezuela is I don't know if Dr. Tim Anderson, the wonderful, prolific author who's on a book tour uh, right now, uh, although I'm sure it's been hit by the coronavirus. I don't know if you heard the earlier part of the show, but I welcome to this part. Uh, Dr. Tim, uh, Australian academic extraordinaire, uh, welcome to London. Sorry, we're not able to afford you the kind of hospitality we would in normal times. We'll come on to what's happened to your tour in a minute, but let's start with Venezuela, which was rather savagely introduced earlier in the show uh, by one of our uh, experts, financial uh, experts. What's the situation with coronavirus in Venezuela and why?
2: Well, the situation is, as you say, there are parallels with Iran because Washington has doubled down on their economic blockade of Venezuela and Iran, specifically to try and damage the population. Now, that's been a bit more damaging to Iran in recent weeks, and there are less cases in Venezuela. Um, But in both countries, there is what the U.S. doesn't have, a public health system, which is how one of the main follow-up reasons to, to uh, the, or follow-up factors that allows the country to get a grip on it. And Iran is starting to come out. There are large numbers of people starting to recover now. In Venezuela, the numbers aren't quite as much.
1: In Iran, uh, the situation is desperate. It is uh, on Italian uh, levels, maybe worse. Uh, how confident are you that they're going to be able to uh, keep a lid on it? Or are we looking at uh, a truly biblical level of plague in Iran?
2: Well, it was very bad just a few days ago, George, but um, as I said, there is a public health system there. There is a political will to address the problem, despite the block A that's stopping certain materials getting into Iran. And they have started to announce uh, large numbers of people recovering. The big hotspot in the last 24 hours is actually the U.S. The U.S. has really exploded in the number of new cases. And the problem there is they don't really have a public health system at all.
1: No, quite. uh, It's a point I tried to make uh, to our expert uh, earlier. It is uh, actually, to me, quite surprising uh, that there is a flight to the dollar, because I think, A, uh, the United States economy fundamentals are deeply flawed. uh, It is politically unstable. uh, And it's going to be hit worse than anywhere else, in my view, uh, by the coronavirus which may it may even have started in the United States. Uh, As I pointed out last week, if Ohio genuinely has 100,000 cases and they didn't tell us until last week, who knows when this virus first emerged and where?
2: Um, Yes, they detected large numbers in New York just recently.
1: uh, Huge numbers. And half of California, the governor thinks, half of California, that's uh, 25 million people. Uh, are going to be uh, affected uh, uh, there. Does this affect the United States' ability to wage war, or its willingness, rather, to wage war, rather than ability, it clearly still has the hardware, uh, but does it have the soft power uh, to do so? Are you thinking that, as I'm thinking, uh, that US uh, interventions and wars in Yemen and Syria and Libya and so on are beginning to run out of steam.
2: Well, they are losing, um, and uh, they know that they're losing, but they c- continue with those wars, and uh, let's recall you know, the, the war that you oppose so vigorously in Iraq too, they're losing in Iraq, they're losing in Syria, um, they're losing the Saudi-led war against Yemen, and it's true that their economy is not really Uh, in its fundamentals, you wouldn't seem to be supporting their capacity to do this, except for the fact that there are so many other countries that are invested in the US dollar. And uh, effectively, it means that other countries are paying for the projection of their military power.
1: Extraordinary. Now, tell us, uh, we're short of time, tell us what what the virus has done to your book tour, and tell us about the book you're touring.
2: Well, you're right. I came, at a, I came at a bad time. There were some restrictions and they've increased and uh, things have shut down. So I'm going home tomorrow, basically. I was going to the Middle East, um, but I managed to do some interviews, including with your wonderful program uh, and some other uh, some other groups. So um, I'll go back and uh, I was going to go to the Middle East to promote the Arabic version of the book. But anyway, these things go on and life goes on and we have to deal with Wars and
1: tell, us, tell us about the book, what's the title, where can people get it, and what's that about? The title is
2: Axis of a Resistance towards an Independent Middle East. It is on Amazon, it's available in the UK, and uh, you, can, you can look it up, and it's published in the US, but it's available on Amazon in the UK, and it's about all of the Middle East wars and how we have to understand all of the eight different wars to understand really what's going on there.
1: I've already read it, and it's absolutely first class. As as are you, you. Dr. Tim Anderson. I'm sorry you're having to go back down under so quickly. I hope you'll come back and see us uh, very very soon indeed. Uh, Emails are coming in uh, thick and fast. Uh, The EU and the USA have shown themselves to be paper tigers. Coronavirus has highlighted how weak they are. China and Russia have stood tall and reacted very decisively. That's from Tony. And James in Dundee, my hometown, says uh, Joe Biden gives me the creeps. I also believe he has dementia. And furthermore, I think if he gets made the president, he'll have Hillary Clinton as the vice president. And I believe that Biden will be deemed not fit for president after a few months. And then Lady Macbeth, I mean, Hillary would then at last be president by default. Uh, You can call him a conspiracy theorist if you like, but he may very well be right. Uh, George, this is a country view from James. I think we all know how much you hate Donald Trump, but you cannot blame this guy for the coronavirus or who the Democrats put up against him. I personally think he's done some good for his own country, my opinion. I also believe the presidential vote will be postponed until this virus is under control, but you will badmouth him regardless. The guy ain't all bad. Cut him a bit of slack, says uh, James Trump. Uh, Sorry, just James James, I said in 2016 I'm not happy that Donald Trump is the President of the United States, but I'm very happy that Hillary Clinton isn't. I've told you that a state of war exists between me and Joe Biden. What more can you expect from me? You want me to like Donald Trump? Christopher Rogers says, oh, that's Christopher in Hong Kong. He's trying to get through. I've tried the phone line. No luck. If you want a comparative analysis of COVID-19 measures in Hong Kong, China, and the UK, latest stats out of China from research papers, and just a feel of what's happening on our streets, give me a buzz. Please call Christopher Rogers in Hong Kong. Uh, And uh, another message, this virus has not emerged in China from animal markets, as they have been doing this for thousands of years, this virus was planted by someone who is attacking China, Iran and Italy as they've joined the Chinese Silk Road. That's a a, a conspiracy too far for me, that one. Uh, And Kevin says, I I predict that not long after it is announced there will be a world financial crash and the coronavirus will disappear. Oh dear. And Richard McGuinness says, nice hat by the way, This is the first time I've seen you on YouTube. I think you're great. I was on holiday last week, was told not to go back to work and not to go back to where I live. I'm a chef. My job is in London and I love it, but now I'm homeless with no job have to go on. We'll beat this and we will move on. Richard McGuinness, thank you indeed uh, for that. How's the poll going? Uh, Just about 2,000 have voted. Two draconian, 10%. Not tough enough, 72% and about right, 18%. All no change. Got about six minutes left to vote on my Twitter feed uh, on that. Um, A good friend of mine has just died from coronavirus in England. Stephen Peart died, Steph Peart, died yesterday at home while self-isolating. I saw her a few weeks ago when I was visiting from New Zealand. She was in great form then. Now she is dead. We must make sure that she and others have not died in vain. Urgent action is needed by all governments. The delays that most countries are continuing will cause unnecessary deaths. That's from John Rothery. I'm sorry for your loss, uh, John. And uh, Jim says, here in the American oligarchy, we're noticing a whole lot of freedoms being just handed away in the name of stopping COVID-19. Well, I'm perfectly good, with draconian measures to combat a pandemic. I'm particularly suspicious of the types of surveillance bills being considered, which basically are saying you'll get your freedoms back whenever we feel like it. Well, I'm not sure what freedoms you had uh, already, to be honest, and if we uh, are uh, so angry after it is over, we'll take whatever they've taken from us back again. But uh, the civil liberty, to spread disease is not a civil liberty I myself will fight for. My right to swing my right arm ends just about a centimeter, a millimeter from the end of your nose. I have no right to harm you because I'm taking away your civil right to live. Fatima's on the line from Bolton. Let's hear from her. Fatima, welcome
0: thank you good 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 evening how good evening. are you evening.
1: yes by the grace of god i'm good what would you like to say
0: so i'm a pharmacy student uh right now i've just finished my placement last week working in a community pharmacy and unfortunately you know working there i realized that this is a sector in the healthcare that's been ignored almost uh-huh. um you know the pharmacist didn't have a mask didn't have any gloves there was barely any hand sanitizers going around enough for the pharmacy staff and you know, we read on social media online. You know, there's a shortage of shortage of masks for the doctors and for the nurses, which is true. And they are getting the support, I I think, and not enough support really. But they are getting the recognition. And I feel like pharmacists are sort of being neglected. And I feel like this is a sector in healthcare that is vital right now because, you know, aside from the Corona patients, there are thousands of patients who still need you know, blister packs, you know, elderly patients who need that support from the pharmacists. people with asthma, people with diabetes, methadone patients. And I feel like if the pharmacists are not protected almost, like the doctors and the nurses, these patients will suffer. So I guess it's just making a point that... um,
1: That's a very good point. And one which is thrown up by the government's SHIELD initiative today, uh, where they say they're going to try and protect uh, the one and a half million people with, chronic underlying conditions uh, that are most at risk of dying uh, in the uh, in the epidemic you're going the the people who know them best are the pharmacists because they've been dealing with them for many years that's why they get their prescription and so you're right Uh, we need not only recognition uh, of uh, pharmacies local pharmacies but support for them Uh, And the very least you can expect is a mask and a pair of gloves and hand gel to wash your hands with. Fatima, thanks very much indeed for that call. Uh, Kevin says, George, calm down, man. There's no need to shout. There's a chance you're going to cause more panic. Take a chill pill. Let me enjoy the show. Well, you're not here to enjoy the show, Kevin. You're here to be educated by it. You're here to be inspired by it. I didn't come here tonight at the risk of my own health, maybe life as a person in a risk category, being over the age of 60, to entertain you, though I hope it has been entertaining, most weeks at least. I came here to discuss with you, to debate with you and others on whether we're on the right track in order to stay alive, to watch and listen to anything at all in the weeks, months, and years ahead. This is a time of life or death, Kevin. I'm angry about the guilty men. That's why occasionally I shout, though I'm not shouting. No, this is my stage voice, Kevin. I'm performing here. I'm projecting here. I'm projecting my voice all over the world as you are already aware of. I'm sorry if you think that is going to cause more panic. I'm actually keeping calm, and I'm carrying on. But don't expect me, please, not to be angry. I'm angry at the state we're in. Have Western government's response to the crisis been too draconian? Only 10% of you think that. That's very interesting. And be not tough enough, 72%, and uh, 18% thinking about Right, that's more or less two thousand votes cast. Do let me know in the next hour at where you stand on that. It means that the Twitter sphere, which is full of the libertarian uh, opposition to draconian measures, uh, is a minority sport even here on the mother of all talk shows. Just before I go to uh, our own medic, Moats Medic, Doctor Ranjit Brar, I want to read this. Uh, Missive from Stephanie in Paris. Hello, Mr. Galloway. I am a cardiac intensive care unit nurse working and living in Paris. The capital, as you must know, has been transformed into a ghost town. Fear is reigning everywhere. It's literally like a Hollywood movie. We are being asked to put dead patients in special bags and forgive their families. Sorry, forbid their families from paying their final goodbyes. We have to wear expired masks due to shortages. I'm working extra hours due to staff shortages. I'm not complaining about my work, but for years and months we've been on strikes exposing the work conditions and the poor payrolls here. And this problem, I think, is global, not only in France. Now we are being exhausted. The question is, will the governments around the world learn from this pandemic and start to invest more in healthcare research and scientists instead of investing in weapons and wars. It breaks my heart to see that football stars are being paid millions while I have to put my life at risk to save patients and being paid nearly nothing. I hope that this pandemic will give governments the wake-up call that we have all been waiting for and to reconsider their priorities Otherwise, all of this would have been for nothing. And this is my greatest fear. Thank you. From Stephanie. I wanted to read that, not just because it is incredibly powerful and from our nearest neighbor, France, uh, but because I happen to know that these are the feelings of our own uh, expert, Dr. Ranjit, who joins me now. Uh, Dr. Ranjit, a very powerful missive from... France. I expect uh, that's the feeling amongst health service workers here in Britain, is it?
5: Thanks, George. Pleasure to be back with you on the show again. Um, can you, are you hearing me okay? I'm not seeing very you. Very well, very well. Good stuff. Um, yeah, I think the, um, the medical implications people are becoming more and more aware of, the economic and social implications of this are continuing to unfold. Uh, that message I just heard you read was, it, it is powerful and unquestionably poignant and topical. Uh, it made me recall uh, you know, a few statistics. We know that 850 billion is spent annually by the United States on its military When a fraction of that perhaps 30 billion would be enough to eliminate hunger in the world Uh, we know that there are a very small number very small minority of billionaires who hold between them in fact six or seven billionaires who hold between them uh, the same amount of money as half the world's population these are facts and statistics which are which are not new Uh, not not long ago in in our own national health service i was involved in um fighting against the imposition of a junior doctor's contract, which I was very worried and my colleagues were worried about, was leading to a downgrade of pay, downgrade of conditions, making it less attractive and less easy to recruit and retain junior doctors. At the same time, the nurse's bursary uh, was being taken away. Nursing has traditionally been, um, you know, a a profession uh, that's open to intelligent and predominantly working class young women, but also men, who can't afford to pay tuition fees for long periods of time to support that noble profession. We know that conditions for nurses were getting so bad. Not long ago, I was working in the capital, in St. Mary's Hospital. I knew nurses who couldn't really afford to carry on working or having to leave the jobs That they loved. We know that there are cases of nurses being on food banks has been a topic within elections. So the chronic understaffing and underfunding of our NHS is something that we really need to look at and address. We know that capacity we've discussed before has been going lower and lower. And this crisis, like every winter crisis actually highlights this problem, but this crisis is perhaps bringing it in a really sharpened and acute form Uh, before the workers of our country uh, and of the world. Why is it that we have only uh, perhaps 8,000 ITU beds or even a country like Germany, yes, slightly larger, but not incomparable, uh, would have as many as 35,000. A case regarding the junior doctor's contract was when that contract was imposed, Um, we had our whistleblowing protection removed so that junior doctors who brought to the public attention Facts that they thought were making the NHS unsafe in this trajectory of privatization and cuts actually were denied and debarred from training. There's a very famous case of a, of a medic called Chris Day, maybe worth you trying to get him on the show. Not someone you'd accuse of being left wing, but someone who he you, who would accuse of very much caring about the care that he delivered. Whilst he was working at a PFI hospital in southeast London, um, he found that the staffing levels were so low at night that he as a junior doctor was looking after 12 patients in ICU by himself. He felt this was unsafe. He raised it repeatedly within the hospital. He raised it during his training ARCP. And when he raised it, he was, um, while initially praised for being a good and conscientious doctor, subsequently denied his training, denied his number, and denied his career, essentially. So there are real problems that are underlying the delivery or the, or the difficulty in our NHS delivering the kind of care which is needed at this crisis time. That said, I know that my colleagues are struggling to do the absolute best that they can with what they have and the resources they have. And you have to say, if we talked a week ago and felt that very few measures were being taken and made certain demands, it's as if, you know, as high a higher government source was listening to your show, George, because huge amount of action has been taken, you have to agree, uh, on a daily basis, more and more economic measures being taken. But the NHS itself uh, is short of equipment, is short of staff, I'm afraid that despite our best efforts, we will struggle if we really are two weeks behind the curve and we start to see the scenes that we're witnessing, the horrendous, the, the, the tragic, uh, but perhaps in hindsight, avoidable scenes that we're seeing in Lombardy today.
1: Yes, uh, there are many things arise uh, from what you just said. Uh, uh, most of my demands from last week uh, have now been realized, not them all. And of course, some of them, cannot be realized in a week or a month because they are the, uh, they are the bitter fruits of, uh, of 40 years, as I put it, of uh, neoliberal politics. Uh, that we, It's not just the Tories for those uh, auto-laborites who uh, like to date all these problems from 2010. As a matter of fact, they date from 1979, 1980, and it will take uh, longer time. Uh, to resolve those, and one of them is uh, that we've been living under the illusion that we have a national health service, the pride of the world, uh, an example to the world. People look, at, they still say it about the BBC and they still say it about the NHS, uh, but in fact, quietly, silently, uh, more or less silently, large parts of the NHS have been undermined underfunded so profoundly uh, and deliberately so, uh, so that privatization would be seen as the only appropriate cure. And for those who could afford it and had no ideological quibble about doing it, uh, why don't you go into the private health sector? Uh, In fact, the, the National Health Service has been quietly murdered over 40 years, hasn't it?
5: I think that's an entirely reasonable and, and sadly accurate point, George. And there's a number of reasons why that has happened. Of course, I mean, Ernest Bevin first said that in order to create the NHS, he had to stuff the mouths of the consultants with gold, was his famous quote, that he had to preserve private practice, enable certain elements of the private medical system to survive. And while that became a very much a minority system for many years, you know, as the Keynesian consensus, if you like, uh, of social welfare has gradually unfolded. The NHS itself has been seen as a ripe fruit for businessmen to pick at, Uh, and certainly it's the case... You know, I can't go into the whole policy, but the internet, the 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 bringing forth of the internal market, so that all of the NHS was divided up into different trusts who barter, who who, who sell services to each other, rather than planning. You know, we 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 are, If you're a family and you know what you need and you know what you have, you can plan to to procure what you need. Um, this system, which is a socialist idea and is extremely efficient has been decried by the Tories for a long time. Many of their backbenchers, if you look it up, you can look on Google and you can find that they decry the NHS as a a Stalinist system. Um, Oliver Letwin uh, and I think John MacDonald, not sorry, Oliver Letwin and and one of his um, colleagues came up with a a concept under Thatcher to privatise the NHS. They called it Britain's Biggest Enterprise. You can look that up and see it again on, on Bob's, Bob Gill's excellent movie, The Great NHS Heist. And they talked about the ways in which you could gradually pick off what they called peripheral services. So when I was very young, before I was a doctor, long before I was a doctor, um, the Hillingdon Hospital workers were fighting a strike because the cleaners at Hillingdon Hospital were being privatized. They were actually being sacked and asked to be reemployed by a private company doing the same job, but at a substantially reduced wage without benefits, without holidays, without sick leave. Um, and this, as we've seen now, is a process that goes run throughout the NHS. Um, Capita and various other um, um, companies have come in. They run the kitchens, they run the cleaning, they run the carpentry, they run initially peripheral services, maintenance. Then of course there was the PFI. And increasingly they've taken even central services. So first of all, elective surgery, things which you could make some money up, was sold off to private interests to provide. And bit by bit, albeit under the stamp of the NHS, more and more of our healthcare is provided by the private sector. And of course that means under the, under the 2011 Health and Social Care Act. Actually, Manha- Matt Hancock, though he's the Secretary of State for Health, does not have responsibility for the day-to-day running of the NHS. You know, Boris, as we pointed out previously, f- found himself unable to manipulate and change the plans of the NHS. This was before the COVID crisis, when he promised... The northern constituencies and his brexit constituency that there would be some material benefit uh, the accrue to the nhs and and we see this again and there's been almost deadly silence from simon, simon stevens the chief executive of the nhs who should be responding to and running this crisis you know, italy has commandeered and nationalized essentially its private medicine in the face of this overwhelming emergency in order to help deal with the situation. Britain has taken a, a cop-out, if you like. It's very keen to present to, to preserve private medicine and the privilege of private medicine, and therefore it's offering huge amounts of money, millions per day, to yeah, contract yeah, out two, services.
1: Two, two, 2.4 million just for the beds alone. Absolutely. Let's go back to uh, how things are on the front line. I mean, you're a heart surgeon. Uh, my wife will be expecting to go in in just a couple of months, three months, uh, for uh, delivery. Uh, Are the hospitals doing any other work or are they completely swamped uh, with this? Are you doing much heart surgery? Are uh, are the labor wards going to be open uh, in July when my wife goes in?
5: Thanks, George. I just correct one small point. I'm actually not a cardiac, I'm a vascular surgeon, which is a fine point that not everyone will appreciate, but, okay. um, but I, I'm, a, I'm an arterial surgeon, yeah. And yes, we are performing still um, emergency surgery, Uh, and actually I, in a specialty where perhaps 70 percent of our workload is made up of emergent and urgent cases so things that can't be put off because they are life and limb saving Uh, we perform operations when people have had strokes operations when people have bleeding from ruptured aneurysms operations to save people's legs these things can't be put off anything that can be put off the elective surgery the hernia surgery the varicose vein surgery things that you know have real material benefit to patients, but doesn't need to be performed precisely at this moment. We're doing our best to defer that. I've been running telephone clinics this week. I've been trying to contact my patients, go through their results without them having to come into the hospital. Many of my patients are elderly. They have multiple comorbidities, the diabetes, the the cardiac disease, um, obviously the peripheral vascular disease Um, that had previous strokes, some of them, some of them have impaired renal function. So all of these patients are particularly at risk if they come into contact with patients who have the coronavirus. And therefore, we're doing our very best to keep them away from hospitals so long as we can manage their conditions in a safe way, at least temporarily. If we can temporize and put off their appointments, that is the best thing. And if patients don't feel that they're in urgent need of, of attention, they should absolutely do their best to contact the hospital. They might find it hard. They might find the hospital is trying to contact them, as we have been doing, um, in order to defer uh, care that can be put off. Um, Currently, if you look at what's happening throughout accident emergency departments and intensive care departments, they're doing their very best to expand their capacity with what they had, with what they have. That means a&E's are being divided up into respiratory areas and non-respiratory areas. China's suite published a fantastic document from Z- Zhejiang University. I don't think I'm pronouncing that quite right. Uh, but a hospital, medical school hospital in, in the um, Wuhan area, which summates its experience in dealing with coronavirus. And part of that
1: uh, document. They have sent it all around the world, yeah.
5: They have, and I really highly recommend my colleagues in the medical profession to look at it. Um, NICE, uh, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence have published some emergency documentation, but it's very limited. A lot of it is about triaging patients, about assessing their fitness for intensive care. But the latest really modern healthcare system that has done such an excellent job is China. This summates their experience, including their reference and experience with antiviral drugs, because our own local recommendation is still that there aren't antiviral drugs that work. That's not the experience of the Chinese. They have found um, particularly um, lupinavir and ritonavir, uh, which are protease inhibitors to be useful, and also some um, anti-TNF-alpha drugs, um, which can be inhaled for patients who have this severe... uh, Uh, um, respiratory syndrome, the SARS part of the infection uh, as a nebulized um, uh, medication that's being produced by uh, by China and Cuba in collaboration. And I think as I just heard on your news, uh, it's for that reason that a large group of Cuban scientists and uh, and, and medical personnel are in fact going to Lombardy to supplement the impressive Chinese aid, which has been in such stark contrast, for example, to the European Union. I'm
1: I'm amazed, uh, doctor, at the uh, absolute uh, silence and inaction from both the EU and the US. There's a lot of Italian Americans. They've all got votes. I would have thought for that reason alone, Trump would be sending airplanes to Italy trying to do Uh, what he could, but they're not. And the EU, as I said at the beginning of the show, have actually fined Italy uh, in the last uh, 10 days, 12 days, rather than come to uh, help them. But let's look at the Italian example. Many people say that we're on the same road as the Italians, in which case the next few months are going to be very, very grim indeed for us. If our numbers, uh, and our number of deaths, by the way, is increasing more quickly than the Italian was at that stage uh, of uh, the epidemic. But let's say we become Italy, doctor. Can we cope with that? And if we can't cope with it, what's going to happen?
5: Um, it's, a, it's a very pertinent question. It's a very uncomfortable question to have to ask. As a, as a doctor, as a medical professional, myself, my colleagues are very used to doing our best to reassure Um, The public, that we have their best interests at heart, that we're doing the best with the medical knowledge we have, that we have excellent technology and facilities to help them. But if we go the way of Italy, Italy announced their further five and a half thousand cases today, and they are overwhelmed by deaths, 650 deaths today. This is, of course, on top of normal service and normal mortality that we'd see in any population, they have an elderly population, as do we, they have a comorbid population, as do we. Um, I think if there was one aspect, and we can talk about the economic things perhaps another time, but if there's one aspect of the, of the medical care that I really think still needs changing and needs drastic changing, it's the, it's the ability to you know, test on a much more widespread level. I have colleagues that I've worked with that I've found have become positive, but they themselves are only tested because they had been to high-risk geographical areas. Our criteria for testing are now woefully inadequate. It's generalised amongst the population. We know this. Many people, intensive care units, for example, in Norfolk Park, a hospital where I worked and trained, and and is uh, uh, as a very dear place in my heart, serving the population of Northwest London announced that they were overwhelmed by the number of cases they had in their intensive care unit. We're doing our best to divide our A&Es into respiratory and non-respiratory zones. But when you compare that to the efforts, you know, the whole of society, economically, medically, socially, scientifically, was mobilized in China in order to, to get a lid on this. Now, China are worried that, having got a lid on it, they still have a large percentage of the population, more than 99% of the population, who have not been exposed, and therefore the importance of a vaccine is clear if we don't want this to recur in larger portions and outbreaks to happen again. But they're in a very privileged position to once again just be worrying about a vaccine. I'm, I'm, I'm worried, as my colleagues are worried, about our capacity. Our capacity for patients who don't need intubation, our capacities who will need intensive care, and if we're going to do anything, you know, as the, as the World Health Organization have repeatedly emphasized to us over this period, we've got to roll out our testing on a much wider scale. And if that means requisitioning laboratories, you know, uh, sort of this reverse transcriptase uh, PCR reaction to actually identify the RNA tests from simple oropharyngeal swabs from patients. So just taking a swab from the nose and the mouth and sending it to a lab, it is possible To get a result that that should be scientifically you know possible in a country such as ours which remains the fifth richest country on earth and if we can give 330 billion to business if we can support wages and i think we should be supporting wages of people who are laid off at this time it worries me still that with the closure of schools there may be three or four million children who don't have their nutritional needs met adequately. And we, again, highlighting this point, we need to do some soul-searching as a country to ask ourselves why the fifth richest nation on earth is in that situation. Well, on that
1: that point, and finally, uh, how how can it be that the fifth or sixth richest country in the world hasn't even got enough face masks uh, for its doctors and nurses, that they're reusing... Uh, equipment that is not for reuse. How is that even possible?
5: You're right. There isn't enough personal protective equipment. Now, if you look at that, that, that document from China was very interesting because they talked about how to arrange the fever clinic and also the levels of personal protective equipment that were necessary for such an infective agent. And it is much more akin to... You know, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, working with these highly infectious agents, Ebola. I mean, it's these kind of levels of personal protection, which go well beyond the normal clinical that we're used to, used to that. So there's a huge increase in demand. That's no question. And that's not just this country. It's worldwide. Supply chains under capitalism, you know, everything that we make and uh, everything that we consume in this country is no longer Made in this country, so it doesn't need repurposing it doesn't need us to think about the way our economy is run but of course, the other thing is that our country runs in a way where yes, we have a large state sector, but overwhelmingly what you see is that the national debt you know is, is, is publicized is, is made public, so things which are loss making enterprise are in private, are in public hands, things which make wealth are in private hands so there's a huge amount of wealth in this country this country is awash with money in some regards but its distribution is extremely uneven so that despite the very wealth that our country has had for centuries uh, as a part of its history i'm afraid we have a huge resurgence of poverty and it means that our state institutions don't have the ability of their own accord to immediately mobilize and rectify those systemic errors and that's the legacy of the last certainly 35 40 years.
1: Dr Ranjit Brar thank you as always for a, a mesmerizing uh, tour of the horizon of the uh, coronavirus 19. uh let's take a quick break i'm well late for that go ahead uh, let me press on tim is in hartfordshire tim go ahead
6: hi thanks george uh, i'd just like to let people know that uh, the major thing happening with food at the moment is that last week, 50% of the food was eaten outside of the home. Next week, 95% of the food is going to be eaten inside people's home.
1: Yeah, good point.
6: There's a massive change in the distribution. Yeah. Um, that, that's one point. The second thing is we're trying, along with a partner, to get a distillery on the farm to produce this alcohol gel. For five days, we've been on to HMRC to take the duty off with no success. Um, we, need, we need people to, in government to just take some action.
1: This is uh, alcohol duty that, uh, on alcohol that would be used for gel?
6: That's correct, yes.
1: And we'll what, the what's duty. their answer on that? Or we, is there, is there no answer? Any, we
6: can't get any answer for five days. We've been trying calling emailing HMRC just to get reassurance that it won't have duty on it.
1: Mm. And you're producing this, are you, Tim?
6: Uh, a friend of mine's got a distillery base on the farm here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this week we've gone from delivering 100 food boxes to 400 in one week. Wow. Um, the, there, is a, there is issues with getting food in from wholesalers in Europe right now. There should be enough food in the country, but the distribution networks need to change completely.
1: Yeah, I'll totally. I mean, me, uh, me. the point you made right at the beginning of your contribution is true. I am mean, a case in point. I eat at least half of my meals outside of the home. Now I'm going to eat almost every one of them inside the home, and that will be true for a very large number of people. So the distribution uh, of food is, is now very different. I need to go to shops to buy my food, whereas I would once have eaten it Uh, in a fish and chip shop. Tim, thanks for that. Julian is in East Sussex. Let's hear from him. Julian.
7: Hi, Hi, George. Sorry. Um, Yeah, I'm from Lewis, not Lou's. Anyway, again, uh, just uh, interested in uh, the uh, supermarkets wanting to uh, employ further people. And I'm interested to know whether they're going to get a good contract or whether it's just going to be an extension of the gig economy just for the uh,
1: while. I don't know the answer to it. I mean, I sing hallelujah that 30,000 people are going to get a job that didn't have one uh, before. Uh, The next task is to make sure it's a proper job. Uh, The supermarkets are uh, undoubtedly now making gigantic, utterly gigantic profits. Uh, Their alcohol sales must be up because pubs are closed. Their food sales are up because cafes and restaurants uh, are closed. Their food sales are up because huge queues of people are panic buying. Uh, And they need to put at least some of that back into the pay packets of the people who actually do the work. Mr. Sainsbury is not often found uh, on the vegetable uh, aisle. Julian, thanks. Uh, for that important uh, question. Just while I'm waiting for the rest of these calls. Here's Ben Cavana from Edinburgh. Boris Johnson's herd immunity is an absolute disaster. And while the Scottish nationalists couldn't take massive fiscal action on their own, they could have taken strong measures to contain the virus in Scotland. They could have stopped flights in, instituted rigid quarantine and social distance measures. Why didn't they? Is it just the issue of the English border? What do you think? Thanks for the great show, says Ben. Well, I think Scottish nationalism is defunct for the time being, as, uh, as uh, our guest earlier said. Regards, Martin, what's your view on the Coilum Bridge hotel sackings? Was it an administrative error, as stated by the hotel group, or was it a modern day clearance? in that not only did they lose their jobs, they lost their accommodation as well. Uh, This is part of the Britannia Hotels uh, group. Uh, It's not the only place where they committed this uh, crime against their workforce and it will always be remembered, I think, uh, by the public uh, when this is over, if indeed it ever is. Ian in Colchester says there should be a new basic tax rate that is applied to all NHS staff which doubles the current tax free allowance. This would give the staff more money in their pockets with those on low salaries benefiting most. It can also be done without directly finding any additional NHS budget. Uh, and and uh, that's from Ian in Colchester. Uh, this from David Howard. Angela Merkel had just had a pneumonia vaccine when two days later her doctor, tested positive for coronavirus. Question raised, obviously Angela Merkel was aware there was the benefit of having a pneumonia vaccine in the event that she contracted the coronavirus, raising the question as to why all our vulnerable people haven't similarly been vaccinated. Theresa says, free movement without the infrastructure and investment to support it, just crazy chickens are coming home to roost. And Mad Planet says basically people are helping the herd immunity initiative but are too stupid to realize, unfortunately. The worst time is to be out now. A lot of people are infected without knowing. It's utter madness. And Keefe says I doubt there are any national healthcare providers that would cope with COVID-19 from a standing start. And Ben Noyes, says nationalize all private hospitals now and make the beds available to the NHS. Moeen Qureshi says, my daughter left back for London a couple of days back. She was shocked that there was no screening of passengers arriving. We, a third world country, Pakistan, is performing such screening at the airports. I learned from Neil Clark uh, on Twitter earlier this evening that actually flights are still coming into London from all of the worst affected areas in the world. I just don't understand that. I don't understand Boris Johnson's uh, loush, uh leisurely, lazy approach to all of this. If, if it's going to end up, as I'm certain that it is, in Chinese, Korean levels of lockdown, and decisive state action. Why not do it earlier than this? Why wait till it's too late every time? You closed the pubs too late and gave them a day's notice so they could all give it to each other on the final night. You're now closing the other public spaces too late, too little, too late. You're Doing nothing about panic buying, nothing about hoarding, nothing about profiteering. Eventually, you will have to, or rioting will break out in this country. So why not do it now? That's my point. Clear the decks. There's a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma.
8: Hello, George. Just my two pennies. Um, I thought we would like to know that we're okay, and we've got lots of friends and family helping us to stay in our home but you know others have an awful lot of added stress in some of these families they're all at home now they're having to occupy their children they got small places with very little money Um, it is a very serious problem This very
1: very serious
8: and the other point was I thought I just mentioned for once my youngest granddaughter she's a training nurse second year and she's working very hard in the intensive care unit oh, yeah. in Bristol. And she's a lovely girl, and she's getting on with it very well at the moment. But who knows what's going to happen? God you know. bless
1: her. What's her name, Norma? Connie. Big shout Connie. out to her.
8: Yeah. And, and George, on and a lighter note, are you missing the sport? Because I am watching. Oh, sport. Desperate.
1: I'm desperate. I'm, I'm utterly bereft. At yeah. the, I don't watch sport. I only watch football. That's the only sport. But I do watch it every night. Uh, uh, and I play it with my sons. Uh, yeah, in, indoors yeah. indoors or in the garden or in the park when we could. And I talk to my children by text. My older boy uh, is uh, sending me texts even right now as I'm yeah. on air about football, about Manchester United, who are they going to buy and so on. I'm absolutely devastated by the loss of the football uh, even though of course it pales into significance insignificance the compared to the suffering and death that's oh, being yeah. caused oh, uh, yeah. elsewhere uh, but it's uh, it's uh, special special know, punishment George. for me norma who do you support yourself
8: bristol city how do you think
1: bristol city there you go great cup run they had a couple of years ago norma thank you my darling for that great call I've got Christopher from Hong Kong on the line, and I simply must fit him in. Christopher, how's it going in China?
7: Um, it's looking good, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm alive uh, where I'm living, uh, which is on the uh, well, Hong Kong SAR, um, but specifically on a very small island. Uh, we have zero infections, I'm pleased to report. Uh, we have... Um, just over 300 infections uh, since January 23rd, now existing in the territory. 50%, I'm afraid to say, uh, that's a 50% increase in infections in one week. The majority of said infections have been imported. That is, we have people flying in who are infected. So we have stricter control measures have been implemented since Friday to curtail that. Briefly, and for the general public globally, please listen to medical advice not to congregate. We've had clusters of infections in Hong Kong with those below 30 years of age because they have conjugated in pubs and restaurants, that is, hot zones where young people go to, the rich go to, to enjoy themselves after work, and gyms. We're talking middle-class people infecting themselves and disobeying detailed information that the state has given to them. It's heartbreaking.
1: Hallelujah. That is very good advice, and... uh Take care, Christopher, it's lovely to hear from you again in Hong Kong. I'm sorry that the hour was uh, so late. Tree says, you spoke about how highly you hold the World Health Organization and doctors. Today on WHO Twitter, they advised against using masks. I didn't see that advice. And they posted about washing hands. How come WHO and the NHS are still not telling people that it lives in the air for three to four hours, transmitted via breath, even by asymptomatic carriers? That's exactly why masks are useful. Uh, They're not, of course, foolproof, especially not a cheap little mask like this one, but they're better than nothing. Uh, And uh, Dave in South Wales says, for the sake of humanity, Bernie must stay in the race. He's the only leader seriously capable of dealing with the U.S. coronavirus. We have never needed a more capable politician in a generation in the world's most powerful country. That's Dave in South Wales, making the point that all of us are interested in what happens everywhere. The President of the United States will not be our President, but the actions that they take and don't take will affect all of us, our lives, and our futures. Uh, It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. We've had a super big audience tonight. Uh, We'll continue the show as long as we are physically able to do so. Uh, So far, so good. We'll be back at the same time, in the same place, next week. And I'm asking you to bring somebody else with you. Our audience last week was well over half a million. It needs to be a million plus. It needs to be people, thinking people, people who question more all over the world. Thanks
4: very much for watching and listening.